0: And welcome to The Dark Word. As always, I am your host, Philip Fracassi. I have a very special guest today. Uh, One of my very favorite, uh, we'll call it new authors, new to me. Um, And uh, after having read her book a couple years ago and being blown away. So we are going to get into all that with Catriona Ward, who was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in the United States, Kenya, Madagascar, Yemen, and Morocco. Her fourth novel, the Gothic thriller *Sundial*, was *Observer* Thriller of the Month and a *USA Today*, *CNN*, and *Apple Books* Selection Best New Fiction. Stephen King called it authentically terrifying. Ward's third breakout novel, *The Last House on Needless Street*, won the August Derleth Prize, and *Esquire* magazine listed it as one of the top 25 best horror novels of all time. Ward's second novel, Little Eve, won the 2019 Shirley Jackson Award and the August Derleth Prize. It was a Barnes & Noble Best Horror Book of 2022 and a Guardian Best Book of 2018. Her debut, Raw Blood, also won the 2016 August Derleth, making her the only woman to have won that prize three times. Her short stories have appeared in numerous anthologies and have been shortlisted for various prizes. She lives in London and Devon. Katriana Ward, thanks for being here.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's,
0: it's a delight. Man, what a resume! I mean, and so let's start with let's start with this because I normally start asking writers like, "Tell me your first sale," and I and I do want to know that. But I'm very I'm fascinated, and you and I got to speak of very briefly when I when I met you at Skylight Books here in Los Angeles, and and one of the things we talked about, I, I brought remember I brought a couple you may not remember, but I brought a couple of your um, the original ed- editions of Raw Blood and and Little Eve. Uh, the Weidenfeld Nicholson editions, and so that was a really fast I, reading. Your experience with, I guess, in particular, Little Eve, but it was really fascinating because what happened with that novel out of the gate, right? And then, and then, kind of the awards came, and mm-hmm. then you had. So take us through, take us through Raw Blood and Little Eve, and then, if you wouldn't mind, and then, kind of right up to as it got to. Um, as it pertained to Last House on Needless Street, which was also very fascinating, reading about your selling that ultimately to Viper after a lot of editors, quote-unquote, didn't get it. But can you kind of talk about that early experience as a writer, how it affected you, and how you kind of persevered through all that?
1: For sure. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's been a, a very sudden change in, in my, um, my life and career over the past um, two years since Needless Street. Um, I, you know, I, I, my first novel, Raw Blood, took me... Ah, uh, I always try and remember. I think I think almost eight years to write. Um, I wrote it over and over and over and over again obsessively. Um, I don't think a single word remains of that um, original first draft. And you know, I, I was working; had a, had a full time day job as well, so I was writing evenings and weekends, um, almost, <laughs> almost treating it a bit like a séance. Really, um, I I just sit. In the, in the evenings, like with a candle and wait to be visited, which I now know, of course, is a terrible way to, uh, <laughs> to, to look for ideas or to, or to get down to work. But, you know, it was all I, it was all I knew how to do. Um, and I was just teaching myself to write, really. It's, it, it's really hard. And then, of course, the dreadful thing happens where you finish one book and all you've ever written is that one book. Um, you don't know how to write anything else. You don't know who you are outside that book. Um, and then you have to do another one and um, i right. I'm, I'm used to this now because i i've got i've become accustomed to the way and I'm sure you've come across this as well where you spend a lot of the first uh few weeks of of, of your next book writing more of your last book but just with different character names um and it's there's a sort of purging process that happens um and i I, I really struggled the difficult second novel is Real, it's um, it's a real thing. I can attest. Um, and it uh, I, I was very late. I missed my deadline. Don't miss your deadlines, kids. They're important. Um, I missed it by a year, I think. And um, I, but it finally came together, and I was I was really proud of it. Um, and that uh, was that was
0: Little Eve the follower. Is was, that right?
1: Yes, that's Eve. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. E, exactly, yeah. So yeah. raw blood followed followed by Little Eve. Not immediately, in fact, not as immediately as everyone would have liked. But it was—I um, was really proud of it—and then it just disappeared. It just bombed. Um, I, you know, it, it's these things happen. It's no one's fault. It's just sometimes a publisher doesn't mesh with a book. I was with a very literary publisher. I'm not sure they knew what to do with horror you know i'm not sure they knew what to do with me at all and my editor left and this is a this is a sort of um, hazard that sometimes happens which is obviously the um the person who has fought to acquire your books and and your your champion the person who advocates for you in within the publishing house if they if you get um uh if if someone else inherits you after they leave you know, they've got a lot of work to do and probably understaffed and overworked. And, it, you know, it's it's difficult to find, no matter how good they may be, that same level of passion to you know, keep a book going.
0: You know, I'm beginning to think that, that losing your editor is a rite of passage because yeah. I've now interviewed and besides just talked to friends who are writers, but, you know, this is probably like, I don't know what it is, like my 20th episode or something. And... It seems to be a, rec- I mean, it's a, re- it is a recurring theme, and and it, and it happened to me with my book that just came out this past week. I had one, I had the acquiring editor, literally, we oh. signed the deal the week after we signed the deal. You know, uh-huh. I got an email saying he was gone and that I was being shoved to a different editor, and yeah, but I, but I can't. It's re- it's to the point now where it's uncanny how everyone I've spoken with has gone through that. It, 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 it's literally become a rite of passage. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but I just thought that was no. so interesting because I keep hearing that. It's like, it happens, kids. You know, it happens.
1: It's it's so strange because publishing is is a business. Absolutely, it's a business, but it's also incredibly personal. It's, um, it's based on these very passionate people who have passionate love for books. And obviously, as we all know, taste is so subjective. So not everyone is going to be able to, to, to just have his blanket adoration for all books equally. And um, obviously, the person who fought for you hardest is is, is the person who's going to be your best champion within, you know, in-house. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, it doesn't always work being passed to different people. Sometimes it works really, really well. Sometimes you get, like, a rejuvenation. Sometimes someone takes you on and sees something that perhaps, you know, um, other people have... Uh, you know, not I've overlooked or missed, but it, it it can go it can go a lot of ways, and it always feels like being orphaned. <laughs> right, <laughs> You feel, feel this great sort of emotional sense of loss, um, as well as the professional repercussions. Um, and I mean, the short version of this story is Little Eve sold. I don't know how this is possible, but it sold minus copies its first year. Um, I owned oh, the, a- the, re- the returns
0: the returns outweighed the sales. Is that what happened?
1: yeah i don't even know how that how that works but but, but it did right um, and <laughs> it
0: also could be a little creative bookkeeping by the publisher oh, sure, maybe i suppose yeah, I don't, I yeah. don't know.
1: maybe i was reading my my my, my bulletin statement wrong uh, statement in, in the loosest possible sense of the word but yeah um you know there was this it, it's it's such a strange thing as a writer isn't it because you feel like you're you know you you, you get an agent and you ink your publication deal and you're, you're that's it as far as uh, you're concerned or rather i'm to be to be frank me as far as i was concerned that's you're riding off into the sunset moment it's the kiss at the end of the romantic comedy it's the wedding at the end of pride and prejudice it's you know that's it that's the end of the story because that's the happy that's the happy outcome isn't it and however there is so much to be negotiated after that happens and it's very much the beginning of your journey yeah you know if it's it's a really strange thing because that that shift in perspective took me a little while to, to to negotiate. I don't know about you.
0: Yeah, because once you sign that deal, that's when the work starts, right? That's when yeah yeah. That's when you're doing the proofreading and the editing and the marketing and the promotion and the design and blah blah blah. And then yeah, it's. Yeah, it's it's like a lot of people think when they get an agent. I've talked about this in the show. Is a lot Mm -mm. they feel like, oh, I get an agent, then it's like it's all rainbows and you know pussycats and and it's and that's not you know that I mean an agent is great. They get you into doors you normally could not get into, but um, you still a ton of work to do. And even after you publish the book, there's Mm. a ton of work to do. If you're expecting your publisher to take over and handle you know handle the marketing and promotion and make sure that book sells, you're you're in for a rude awakening. Every all those writers that's, have to yeah. have to do the groundwork. You know,
1: that, that's correct. Yeah, it's it's you're you're constantly you're constantly you know self-promoting, and as as you know as you as, as you should be. You know, you've worked really hard on something. Why should you not um, you know advocate for it? But Yes, it's you know these there these these I always see in movies like these vast marketing budgets that books. Have. <laughs> like, oh, I know. You know, I know the but... Same, same storyline. The same storyline that has you know someone writing their first short story at eighteen and selling it to the New Yorker. Like it's it's um it's 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 a fictional, very fictionalized account of, of the process as, as as I know you know um and it can be heartbreaking it can be
0: yeah. And then so okay so raw blood came out and did whatever it did numbers wise little it's Eve came right, out yeah. yeah and little Eve came out into your use your words i would never use it but it <laughs> bombed right and it, it totally but, did. yeah.
1: Absolutely. but then
0: it started winning awards and well,
1: yes yeah
0: it kind of got a so new good. life right
1: well that it, it did it, eventually it, 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 I was very I'll always be incredibly grateful to the um, you know the committee the judges and, and the um, the trustees of the Shirley Jackson awards because this is a book Little Eve was not even published in the states in fact it comes it came out only two weeks ago in the US for the first time courtesy of Tour Nightfire but um, it, it's um, you know they really they really engage with the genre and they seek out Works and do a huge amount of reading to, you know, trawl through. these quite, and I'm speaking for myself here, quite obscure uh, publications that nobody else has ever heard of, and and I, I was, I was absolutely, and I mean this literally, open-mouthed and gobsmacked to, to to uh, to win that prize. Um, Shirley Jackson is a huge influence on me, and I know that, you know, this the the tr- the, the awards have sort of. You know they're involved with the trust and her family and things like that, so it, it meant a huge amount. Um, and it's it kind of it, it didn't really affect sales in, in an immediate way because I'm, I'm you know as as I'm so sure everyone knows books are almost like there's a sort of glacial um, progression that they make. They don't move fast. Um, um, the industry is it's it, it's it's one that it measures its um, development in sort of years. Instead yeah. of months or days, um, but it was it was the turning point and. Uh, but even despite that, I did find it very. I, I knew that it would be very difficult to get another book deal because you do have a kind of credit rating with the publishers. Yeah, you got a track record. Make, yeah, yeah, you got a track record, and they, you know, there's an, you know a lot of a lot of publishers simply are unable, due to company policy, to, to offer you more than a certain amount that an algorithm dictates based on the sales of your last book, which, as discussed, for me was not great news. Um, right. So I, well, I, I just, I thought to myself, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I'll get to do this again. You know, this job, which I've fought really hard to to get into and, and tried to, you know, and done my 10,000 hours, you know, is it 100,000 hours or 10,000 hours, you know, that, that you have to put in to get good at something. Right. Anyway, a lot of hours I put in, you know, all the time and, and and broken through and I'd had my, you know, my... my and my happy, my happy ending to the to the story, and I got my agent, I had my publishing deal, and yet it, you know, it, it wasn't guaranteed to work out. So I just thought, Do you know what, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna write the most ambitious and mad book of my heart, um, and that ended up being the last house on Needless Street. You know, because I, i um, all the two first books are very. They're much more traditional Gothic, I think. So they're they're period. um, And they're set in respect... Well, Royal Blood's set all over the place. Um, But it's all... all, The latest time period, I think, is is, um, up to the First World War. And Little Eve is is set in the early 20th century as well. So, you know, they're historical... Um, they both involve old, creepy houses, and you know a young woman navigating her destiny. And I have I have a huge amount of time for that kind of literature, and I love it. That's you know that's why I chose to write it. But I thought I've done that. I've done that now. Is there yeah. any way that I can um, I can take these amazing oppositions of the Gothic that I love so much and I use them in a, in a way that's new to me, to, to me? and also. Um, uh, and also maybe the setting as well. Settings always always almost one of the first things I, I, I come to with novels. And I just thought, what about because I was born in America, as you very kindly said earlier, and I grew up. Mo- more of my childhood was spent here than it was in because I'm actually in LA as we were discussing earlier. And um, was spent in the states than it was in um, in the UK. And I I wanted to you know what it's like. You use you mine yourself so deeply for these books, don't you? And I wanted to use that part of myself, which, you know, didn't really have any function in the more traditional and um, northern gothic um, kind of style I was working in earlier. So I thought, let's, you know, let's do some um, kind of mad, for it, hot. Uh, um, so I didn't know whether I'd get to, to write uh, a book again, a novel again. And this was obviously uh, a moment of great sorrow, but also, kind of a gauntlet thrown down really i just thought i'm going to i'm going to write the book of my heart the the dark and the dark and twisty and and very ambitious it's an ambitious book book." yeah yeah and i wanted yeah and i wanted to use those parts of myself that that i had not got to use in those in those previously gothic you know historical gothic novels um where you know you've got you've got the very classic elements of you know the 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 creepy looming mansion on a moor and and a young woman figuring out her destiny and these um, and a historical setting and things like that. Um, so I and I also have this. Obviously, I love like the great twentieth and twenty first century classic horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, which i which are i you know use the gothic but actually there's there, there's there's a slightly they are a, a pointier slightly sharper slice aren't they than um than than pure um purest gothic so i thought and i wanted to also use my american background um because i grew up here in the states mm-hmm. and it's it's um it, you know you, you mine yourself so deeply um, someone said, I can't remember where I heard this, but someone said once: um, with each book, you tear each one from your chest with a bloody fist. Mm-hmm. And, um, that seems to me right to be correct. Um, and I wanted to, uh, I suppose, tear out a bit different part of my chest to continue the metaphor, um, unsuccessfully. Um, but it's so. I, 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 and my love of true crime as well, I think, makes its way into that into that book. And what really fused so well with the Gothic um, uh, elements is goth- the goth- gothic novels are all about fragmentation and testimony and witnessing. Mm. You, you know the fir- the classic first person account, the so called unreliable narrator, is uh, originally a Gothic um, a Gothic gesture, and um, it's it's actually fascinatingly, I think based you know it comes from um, the old Catholic tradition of witnessing. For witnessing, for um, the uh, att- attesting to miracles, and for canonization, for, to to make a, make someone into a saint, you know, you've got to amass all this evidence and submit it to the to, to the Vatican in order to be accredited. Mm-hmm. And this, the Gothic becomes a sort of profane version of, of that. Always, pre- it's always protesting its truthfulness. Always. Um, Asserting it's, um, it's th- that this really happened, yeah. you know. Um, Jonathan Harker's diary in Dracula being one of the classic examples of this, you know, always using it's it's the it's the um, you know it's the literary version of found footage, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's insisting on its own veracity all the time, and I just thought that was so fascinating. And but I wanted to do it in you know a modern context. I wanted to use modern settings, and I wanted to take. And I think I think I think I think this is probably the most unreliable set of unreliable narrators. But I wanted to take that that ever <laughs> that I've ever come across. But I wanted to take that to the extreme. Right. You know, how how far can you can you stretch um the the reader's belief? And also how far can you immerse them in a point of view? Because I, I always think this the comfort of fiction, right, is is that it's um, it provides structure and objectivity that lack, that is so notably lacking in life. And what's wonderful, what I wanted to do with Needless Street* was kind of take that away and break that down. So you're immersed in the character's viewpoint so thoroughly that you're wearing them like a skin, um, and you're forced into their subjectivity to a degree which I think becomes part of the horror. You're being forced along on this, on this, in this point of view. Um, to witness and and empathize, or at least experience things, which are deeply, deeply uncomfortable, yeah. and, and also alarming, because because they are so so unreliable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to quote you, I'm going to qu- I'm going to quote yourself to you. But I, I, I read something that I found was really interesting. The way you we, we you're always so well spoken in your interviews, by the way. But uh, oh, You geez. said, I find the unreliable narrator such an intuitive way to write because it resembles how we live. We don't have any knowledge or an omniscient narrator telling us what to think when we walk into a room. We just have to deal with whatever we find, which means we're wrong a lot. And I thought that was such a cool way to put it because you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's the classic unreliable narrator to your point, but you are only, sh- and that's kind of first person versus third person omniscient, right? Is you're kind of showing mm-hmm. only so much. You're only giving the reader so much information. And what you did with Needless Street is you took that to your point. You took it kind of, to 11, right? You took it, yes. you went You went all the way, you kind of made it the sort of, um, uh, it was sort of the hook of the whole story was you never really knew as the reader exactly mm-hmm. what you were reading and you, you know, you really, um, it's such a house of cards, that book. That was the first thing I thought mm-hmm. of when I finished it. I was like, I, I was so impressed because I was like, that it was such a, that was a house of cards in a strong wind because
1: it, <laughs> yes, because it was so
0: many things going on, character wise, and the viewpoints, and then all the twists and turns, which you won't spoil for people. Go read the book. Um, but when you, so you said, okay, so you finished, go back to your last point. You, when you finished Little Eve and, and you were like, this might be the last book I ever published. I'm just going to, in a way, you feel, it feels to me just listening to you talk about it. You were just like, I'm free in a way. Like, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to write the craziest, most bad shit. Like unbelievable, dark, insanely narrative, narratively structured book because that sounds it's and I think you you know I've, in past interviews I've read you say because it was exciting mm-hmm. and it was and you, and um, you're inventing the rules instead of sort of maybe writing to the rules. So can you talk about a little bit about um, you've talked about a lot of your inspiration for Nina Street? How did you approach that narrative structure? And I mean that technically speaking, like how did you? Did it, was it, um, was it, how extensive was the outlining? How extensive were, were we talking like, you know, flow charts? Like how did you, cause I'm very curious as a writer, how you yeah. pulled it off. Frankly, I God. want to know how you did the magic I mean, trick.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I asked myself that a lot of the time. Um, because I remember getting up, like, like getting up in the morning and knowing I had to write that day and thinking, I just, actually I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can pull this off. Um, it, because, and it felt dangerous, which was very exciting. But it felt like writing on a knife edge. Because as you say, um, it's, a, it, it's a very complex, it's a sort of Gossamer structure, where if you pull one thread, the whole thing just sort of shivers, shakes, collapses. Um, and I I tried, in terms of planning, I, um, Anita Street taught me a lot, actually, about my own <laughs> My own abilities and limitations, but um, one thing it did teach me is um, that I tend to visualise things, uh, plot anyway, more as a map than as a diagram. Interesting. So yeah. I know. So I'm starting. I start. I know I'm starting, and I know where I'm going. And there, I mean, that may change, but you know, just as a, a starting point. But what? What? And I have various tentpole moments, which, which I know I have to reach along the way. But the rest of it is a completely alien landscape. I don't know how um I don't know how I'm I don't know how I get there. Um, and it's it's always that's the, the exciting process of discovery. Um, and the things with Needle Street, I did try to do one of those murder boards, you know, the ones you see on serial killer um
0: right films with the string attaching the the with photos the, and stuff like that.
1: With the string and yeah, with <laughs> the string map. and photos of people and yeah. Like, yeah, and a little map and you know yeah. sort of, exactly names of suspects, pictures of a rotted foot, all of that. Um, but I, 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 what I found was um, making it external just completely killed it. Interesting. Um, and I don't, I don't know why or how. So I didn't actually, um, I didn't render it on the page in a sort of in any sort of form except for writing it. I held the whole thing in my head. Which was <laughs> wow. Un- I got I, I got I got to know it so much. I was and so int- intimately and intricately that I I just internalized it. So because I mean I was, I started, I did that thing of like okay maybe I'll take notes or you know and and uh, and have a sort of like little chapter summaries. But the thing is, as soon as I started doing that, that became more writing than the writing itself because it was so complicated so I, I just held it in my head, this sort of weird, dark, dark sort of um like spark network of 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 themes and ideas and plot points and yeah. it's very, very complicated sort of um you know very very complicated misdirection and and also telling a story that way, which is the story happens in the gaps, doesn't it because you you're hearing. Each person's point of view, which is incomplete, right. and the reader has to fill in a lot of the blanks. Um, it, it's it's a, you're always having to also control how much the reader knows and what you would like them to think, as opposed to what they, as opposed to what's actually happening. Um, I'm a great I'm a great believer in the word reveal as opposed to the word twist. Yeah, because I think that twist implies some kind of trick, um, whereas actually what you should be doing is showing the world as it truly is and it should seem i think at that at that moment of reveal it should seem like um it should seem like the only possible conclusion and yet have been totally unguessable up until that moment quite it's quite demanding actually well <laughs> quite a demanding exercise
0: yeah well you know what's interesting is a couple of things oh and then i want to talk about characterization for a second but before i get into that sometimes i'll read because i read a lot of mysteries or i read a lot of thrillers and i, I enjoy reading that stuff and and some I don't know, at some point, I think, you know, I was reading a book and the payoff, the reveal, if you will, um, one of the things uh, that I thought was really oh, no. um, interesting about reading this thriller uh, was when I got to the end and they had the reveal, I was like, meh, you know, like, okay, like I, it was, it was fine. Like I wasn't, and I don't read for the, I'm not one of those readers who's like. You know, if the twist is, I'm all about the journey. I'm a very journey guy. But, but it was a thriller, and I just kind of remember thinking, "Oh, okay." And I think that happens a lot. And I think what to what I'm suggesting, or when it comes to your book and the way you wrote it, all being in your head, is what's, what, what I what I realized at that moment as a writer was if I know the truth, mm. then and all I have to do is keep that truth from the reader. Mm. And then it's so much easier for me to write the that story and you know, if, if if that makes sense it's kind of, i mean no it seems obvious, but i guess what I'm saying is you can it's so um what seemed like very complex you know um reveals or very complex like um uh misdirection or very complex like you know hiding the the ball under the 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 cups as it were mm. but but if but if you know the truth. At the as a writer, mm. then you you it's easier to play around because you you can you you know you don't um you can kind of futz with, futz with how much you're telling the reader and and when you when and when you do something that you know is a misdirection it's okay you kind of keep it squared away because you know ultimately what's going to happen so I just think and I know it I guess it sounds kind of obvious when you say it out loud but at the time when I was reading it it was kind of a re, it was kind of like this light bulb in my head where I was like. Yeah, it's because I I guess part of me is always like, boy, how do these writers like, you know, I read like all these mysteries and uh, Agatha Christie stories and stuff. How do they, you know, create such complex puzzles? And in a way, it's like the puzzle really isn't that complex. It's just that you're not telling the reader everything they need to know that you know. And Needless Street was like, again, that time is, you know, turned up to 11 in that. and, and, And this could segues me into, the next question I have for you, which is, and you've talked a lot about characterization and, Ooh. like, and the without spoiling anything, spoiling anything, I don't know if that's a word. Um, without spoiling, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is not right. Uh, is would you think it was easier for you to maintain in your head because you were so, because uh, you could see, you could see the characters. So clearly, because the character, you know, I mean, was it, were you, were you holding onto the characters as you went through the story or are you hanging onto the plot as you went through the story? If that makes sense.
1: I, that, that's, that's a really astute point. I, um, yes, th- because that's what, th- those are your two anchors, aren't they? Um, those are your two anchors when you're, when you've got, when you're writing in this sort of like, um, quite wild, um, And uh, and out there, uh, like uh, haze of subjectivity, the two anchors you have are character and plot. Um, They're your best friends. And um, when I I suppose actually, it's both at different times. So what's great about the characters in *Needle Street* or indeed in you know, in in any really, I think probably any really well written book. Not that I'm complimenting myself there, but um, is is that they. they all want something and have clear, you know, they have clear, um, almost like uh, act, you know, the, the way that actors approach a role. They have clear objectives and clear obstacles and um, and clear defining characteristics and loves and hates and wants. So it's it, that drives the plot and the characters sort of inform each other in this really um, in this really intimate way. Um, you know, pl- character is plot, and plot is character, to a certain mm-hmm. extent, I would say. Um, what really helps with, with, it helps when you, you get bogged down, you know, you get bogged down a little bit in, in detail or complicated things, is remembering those big, like, tentpole moments where you're like, i just got to get there. I've just got to get there, and then I'll figure out what to do next. So, and that, those two things really are my best friends when, I, when I'm writing. Is remembering that the plot and the character are essentially the same thing. And when in doubt, just get them there. Just get them to the next big point that you have to get to. Um, mm. And I, I, that seems to me extremely, to be extremely, uh, like those are the things that save me when I'm struggling a little bit, you know.
0: Yeah, when you, but it's interesting. So when you start a novel, and I'm not going to ask you the pants or, you know, plotter question, but I'm curious, when you start a novel, do you, do you, do you have all those pole moments in your head up to the end? Or are you just like, I'm going to get him to, I'm going to give him to the, you know, the next, the next, uh, rise and then we're going to camp for a minute and then figure it out.
1: <laughs> yes. That's an, <laughs> that's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you, you do, especially for the first draft. Um, I have to be a lot more organized now than I used to because I'm doing one a year, right. um, which is, um, hard actually. Um, because there's no room to make mistakes so um and writing responds really well to uh to time an organization um even if you ditch that organization you know at any given point and, and go for something completely different so to have a plan at the beginning is is critical, and it can be heartbreaking because sometimes that plan rese- bears no resemblance to what <laughs> eventually comes out, but you have right. to start start with one um even if it's only to chuck it halfway through the first draft um and then what seems to happen is. I, I, you know, you, you're so deep, I'm so deep in the book that I don't really, I can't really see it properly. And then there comes this light bulb moment, usually about a week before I finish, where I suddenly realize what the book is about. Um, mm. And I suddenly realize the actual, you know, the real book that's been hiding inside this sort of structure I've been just sketching out. And, um, and then you have to go back and write it all over again. So it's a combination of both. I always find there is a a, rev, a moment of revelation, it's a sort of road to Damascus moment when I'm at quite near the end and I go, "Oh no, it's about this really." And right. Then, and then you have to start and then you have to start at the beginning again.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this but I I I'm kind of the opposite. I'm like my first draft is pretty darn close to like the book. Um, but but I'm a huge huge outliner. Like it's I think I'm a screenwriter experience, so I think I just it's just I know it's just easier for me to work that way. Everyone has their own ways of doing things. But but to your last point, I've had that moment where um you 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 it's almost like you're subconsciously putting things into the story,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not knowing why, and then you get to the end to your point, and you're like oh. That's, That's why I put that in there. <laughs> now yeah. it all makes sense. Yeah. I, it's it's really sc- almost borderline scary, but yeah. that happened to me very recently. And I was writing a um, you know, I was writing a story, a long story, and uh, and I and I and at the end, to your point, I realized it was about something completely not completely different, but you know, something different than what I had thought in my head. And then, and I went back. I was like, oh, well, I go back and rewrite. And then as I was rewriting, I was like, wow, this point. Or this scene or this moment that I had in the story, which I didn't really know why I had it in there at the time. It didn't make sense, now makes perfect sense. Which I think is a little creepy. But there, oh
1: yeah, I mean there's there's this wonderful quote by I hold on one second. I'm gonna just find this because I want to get it right. Um there's this wonderful quote by Iris Murdoch, which is um which is I think it's un, in under under the net. Um mm-hmm. um which is about about it's it seems to be about the character making a decision, but actually, it's about—I can't find it. I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, so, yeah. it's, it's actually about the process of writing, and it's—it it's, starts with um, beneath the level of my attention, things were taking shape deeply within me. These great dark shapes moving in the dark beneath the level of my attention, and I thought mm. that's perfect, is not it? Because it yeah. does happen almost in the corner of your eye. Writing, it—it um, it, it happens off stage. So much of it. And, yeah. that, and that's always a surprise. Your subconscious is working all the time, even when your conscious mind might be frustrated or blocked. Your subconscious is, is, is back there, you know, with, its, you know, hammer and tools. Um, which is why I always say, and I think I put this line in Needless Street as well, is when Olivia says, you know, if you don't like what's going on, go to sleep. Um, but mm. going, going to sleep is a fantastic way to crystallize and, per- and percolate ideas. Um, I, I often set my brain a problem before I go to sleep at night, like a thought yeah. problem or a logic problem. And when I wake up in the morning, it's not uncommon that I have it. I have the answer. It's yep. a really strange process. It, it, there, there is a sort of magical element to it.
0: Yeah, I've I've been asked, you know, in the past, where someone said, "Well, where do you get you know the whole where do you get your ideas thing?" And I said, you know, honestly, I gener I do most of my writing, quote unquote. When I'm waking up in that lucid dream state, when I'm half awake and half asleep and I can just kind of lay there for, you know, 15 minutes or so while I'm, and I can just sort of work through a problem. And that's usually when I come up with the best solutions is that it's kind of half, half consciousness state of mind. And, um, yeah, it's amazing. I, it's, it's such a wonderful thing, you know, as a writer, when you're working on a project, you're immersed in something. It's so wonderful to be able to go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking yeah. about it. That's kind of one of the negatives of having a lot of different things going on at the same mm, time. Mm, mm, you yeah. don't have that luxury. Um, okay, there's two things I want to get to sort of quickly because we're probably yes. over time at this point. But I want to really ask you – first, I want to ask you about – you mentioned this earlier. You said Needless the Street is a novel of the interior. And then you kind of said – and I've read about this in other interviews you've done. Mm. You, you, said I, you said when you start a book – one of the things you first decide upon is the setting, right? And mm-hmm. yeah. and like, so we haven't mentioned sundial a lot, but sundial is you know it's very much a wide open desert setting, which is very different than Leda Street, which is very suburban. You know, mm-hmm. Cold de sac in a neighborhood, or surrounded by you know forest, and, and of course you know Little Eve being on the island and everything. So, can you talk a little bit about that? How is that like? So so how explain how that works for you? So if you to the first thing you think of is setting. What does that mean to you and how does it like drive your story in your head?
1: I mean, a bit in the same way that plot and character are the same thing. I think the setting, it, particularly coming as I do from that kind of very gothic background, the setting does become part of the engine that drives the story. Sundial a great example you just mentioned earlier. So Sundial set in the Mojave Desert, um, mm-hmm. which made a huge impression on me when I went there. Um, I always do try and make each setting very, very different. Um, So uh, after Needle Street and that suburbia and the forest, I really wanted something really different and bleak. And this is what sort of inspires so much about the American landscape as well, is that it's got this huge, it contains every single, uh, like, grand, um, you know, jaw-dropping kind of um, uh, uh, topography and landscape you could possibly want. Sure. So... Anyway, the Mojave is an extraordinary kind of place to be. It's, um, it's really loud. You always think the desert will be quiet. It's so loud. There's so much going on, the wind and, and, and like, debris blowing and just this ambient sense of this constant soundscape, um, which is a very, a quite uneasy-making, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And what's so great about it is that although it, um, it looks like freedom, it's actually a trap. So, when Rob and Callie are right. at Sundial, they can't leave without, you know, you can go in a car, but you can't go out into this great expanse of nothing because it will kill you uh, in, in one of many, many um, nasty and unpleasant ways. So, and that's, and I, it fed so nicely into those themes of family and, um, you know, this this structure that's, or this thing that both supports and also potentially contains you. Um, and uh, yeah, I, so the the landscape was, is always it's always it was uh, is a, a key um, kind of uh, like support like it's one of it's one of the big things that the story revolves around and
0: draws. yeah, I mean it's in a lot of ways it's a character right and yeah and 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 you know it's interesting you were just talking about how you know it's a trap and you yeah. you know if you go out into it you're walking into danger and you know in sundial you. you purposely or not purposely, but, you know, metaphorically, you know, one of the sisters goes out into the big cruel world and gets burned, you know? And it's like that same kind of thing where it's like, you it could almost see the desert being a metaphor for like family or containment or whatever you want to call That's it. exactly
1: and, right. Yeah. 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 And
0: you step out of that boundary, man, you're on your own and bad things are probably going to happen to you at least yeah. in, at least in your world.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, well, in all my worlds. Yeah. Exactly. In your worlds. Yeah. 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 And there's yeah, and ex- exactly, and there's a sort of safety in this um, savage, isolated environment because you don't actually have to engage with human feeling, really. You know, you can, um, you can be, you can make your own rules and be and be that, be, be an outcast. So, it's a yeah. god. Desert, desert horror is is fantastic. There's not enough of it, I don't think. Like there should be more.
0: Yeah, there, there. It has its moments. I remember mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's a movie Breakdown starring Kurt Russell. That's a wonderful desert horror movie, mm. but um, thriller, I guess. But but you know, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, for the same reasons. You know, setting things in deep deep space. Uh, you know that trapped isolation feeling. Yes, setting things yeah. on the middle of an ocean. Yeah you know, where you can't get back to shore. It is a wonderful, and the desert is another example of that wonderful kind of, you're isolated, surrounded by nothing but space, but yeah. also isolated. Okay. Last thing I want to get to, then I have to let you go, but I, I cause I, I loved what you said about, you were talking about the importance of horror and you've had a lot of really wonderful things to say about this subject. And I wish we could mm-hmm. spend another half hour just talking about it. But one of the yeah. things I want to point pinpoint for, for those listening is you said something, uh, and you were quoting a friend of yours. Uh, well, actually, let me, before I get to that, let me say real quick. So you said it, 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 for women and vulnerable people, there's an aspect of rehearsal to reading true crime and horror. It's sad to say, but many people are waiting for violence to happen to them in some aspect of their lives. So there's a sense of arming yourself. If you're becoming familiar, familiar with it. I thought that was really interesting. And you talk a lot about empathy and the horror yeah. and how, how empathetic horror can be. Um, and, and then what I was going to say originally was you, you mentioned this, the, the psychologist friend of yours yeah. who said you can familiar, familiarize yourself with violence uh, and arm yourself with knowledge, you know, and make friends with your fear. Mm. And uh, so can you just – to close, can you just talk a little bit about your philosophy of horror and how it's empathetic and how it arms yourself against mm. the, great, the world's greater threats, if you will?
1: Of course. I mean, so I have – I've got to be in my bonnet about this phrase that gets used in reviews, particularly when a literary writer sort of deigns to turn their hand to horror, where the reviewer will right. go, they, they transcend the genre. Which <laughs> is one of the most patronising things that you could say about anything. Um, yeah. As horror is a ditch to be climbed out of. Horror is, um, horror speaks to the deep, the deep parts of ourselves. It is the, the one genre that doesn't have You know, an enjoyable, pleasant name. You know, romance? Delightful. I'll read that. Science fiction? Sounds exciting. Fantasy? Yes, please. Horror? Asks us to do these uncomfortable things. You know, reading and writing are are a sustained act of empathy anyway. You know, I only write half the book. The reader creates, you know, the reader reads it and the book exists. The book in itself is just an object. What the book is, the story is, exists in this sort of mind meld between reader and writer. And to ask people to read horror is, that's a big ask. You're you're asking someone to engage with their deepest fears. I, as a writer, have to be terrified of what I write. Otherwise, who would believe writing it? Who would believe it when they read it, you know? But, um... More than that, I'm, I'm, it's like metaphorically holding out a hand to the reader and saying, I'm afraid of this. Um, if you're afraid of it, too, take my hand. And, we, yeah. you know, you walk down the long, dark tunnel together. It's, I'm, I, I think it's one of the most powerful ways of engaging with ourselves um, and with each other and with the things around us that, that, that frighten us. And so it's, it's incredibly expressive and can, can speak to so many things which... Um, and cut through so much of the, you know, cut through all the superficialities. It's, it's, it's full on your sword stuff. You know, there's no washing up in horror. Or if there is, it's horrible washing up. Um, right. <laughs> I, I, I have a hu- I'm a huge, passionate um, advocate for the genre. I think, I think it, um, you know, it, it sometimes gets spiked down, very low down on the sort of genre hierarchy. And I think that's, um, I think that's short-sighted.
0: Yeah, I think we're definitely. I think I think we're definitely coming into our into our golden age here. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, there's so many great new voices happening right now, and and I've I've written articles about horror being so expansive and and just the range with which uh, that that it offers to people. You could get pretty much anything you want, and and oh. it, it's funny. It's like you know, I'm I'm way past the dating age, and and you know, and of course been married for a long time and stuff. But it almost makes me think like if I could go back and date again, mm-hmm. uh, instead of asking about your siblings or your job, I'd be like, what scares you?
1: Yes, that's a good question. Wouldn't
0: that be a great way to open like one of those awkward dating? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the answer, if that's your first question to your date, might be yeah. you
0: yeah right well right now you are dude Uh, okay well listen uh, hey Catriona thank you so very much I'm so delighted that you were here and able to spend some time in the dark word
1: oh that was wonderful thank you so much I loved it Mm -hmm. I wish we had hours more
0: we could go on and on Well, we'll we'll do it another time or we'll we'll chat next time we see each other be fun right. well listen and guys who are listening uh, thank you so much for tuning in and for listening to this episode of the dark word until next time I'm your host Philip Percocet Hey guys, it's Philip again. I wanted to let you know that you can buy any of the books discussed on The Dark Word at The Bookhouse, which is Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the BookhouseMillburn.com. That's M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit the actual store in Milburn, New Jersey where you can buy books from all the authors we feature here on The Dark Word or the Book and Film Globe podcast. Audio Hopper.